0: This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws, and this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast. Kenneth and Robin talk about stuff.
1: Audio editing and bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press.
0: Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include running survival horror, Maxwell Knight, scary dolls, and Paracelsus. part where we talk about murder. Right, Murder of Crows, that is. Atlas Games' macabre masterpiece of murderous mayhem. Murder of Crows is a card game. It's got five basic kinds of cards, one for each letter of the word murder. You win by spelling the word out in front of you. But each card also has a snippet of flavor text. And when you spell murder...
1: You can read your card's flavor text out loud in order to hear a clever little story about how the homicide happened. Like magic! Murder of Crows is easy to learn. And
0: gorgeous Edward Gorey meets Caligari. The demo crew at Atlas sells this game like crazy when they show it off at conventions. But somehow it remains less well known than it deserves. Ken and Robin to the rescue! Exactly! Now you and I, Ken, can be found in Murder of Crows! That's
1: right. Anyone who buys Murder of Crows as part of this limited-time promotion will get special
0: Ken and Robin cards for their Murder of Crows decks. We're pretty great, too, in the parlance of the game were three crow cards, which means it's hard to stop whatever nefarious no good we get up to. And as always, Tom, Denmark's art is wickedly beautiful. And spot on. Uh, yours
1: looks fetchingly betrachian. The deal is this. Head to atlas-games.com slash Murder Ken and Robin. Oh, dear. <laughs> Buy Murder of Crows. And
0: get the Ken and Robin promo cards. You may never have the chance to commit such foul deeds again. Foul deeds perhaps inspired by the need to read out loud URLs. That's right. Not not with the two of us, anyway. Head over to atlas-games.com slash murder Ken and Robin. Or follow the link in the show notes. Yeah, follow the link in the show notes.
1: It's time once again to Ask Ken and Robin... Shane McLean asks Ken and Robin, how do you do survival horror in an RPG? Not a combat game, but a survival hide, run, and investigate sort of game, which I think is a little different from survival horror qua horror, although obviously you can play horror in an investigative mode, as I think we have demonstrated between the two of us. Um... The guy who probably would be the best at answering this is our buddy Will Heinmarch, who, of course, is working on Raised, which is just that sort of game where aliens or some other catastrophe, probably aliens, has wrecked the Earth and they're moving about occupying it, and you, the few survivors, must scamper about in the shadows and figure out the forensic pathology of Earth. Uh, who killed it and why and what, how did they do it and how do we uh, survive underneath their booted alien heel- Uh, Robin, do you have
0: thoughts on the general topic? I I guess the even more sort of primal example or most common example now of survival horror is the uh, zombie plague uh, campaign. Um, And uh, I guess uh, we can get to other survival-y content wrappers later. And so the questions there are, uh, first of all, uh, how long an experience are are you looking for? Uh, if you are only looking to do one session, you can uh, plan it to start bumping off the player characters in the in the final hour. Uh, in a campaign setting, you might want to go back to the uh, old school idea that you have a whole bunch of characters uh, generated and ready to go, and that Uh, your characters are kind of disposable, that they'll get chewed up and turned into zombies pretty uh, frequently, and then uh, you will just replace them with somebody, uh, some other human survivor that they come across and keep on going. And then there, I guess, the sort of the uh, game goal within the campaign is to see who can have the character who lasts for the longest number of sessions. And so I guess that gets to, to point number one, is you need... Huge buy-in from players to get them to want to do survival horror because it goes against the uh, wish fulfillment that a lot of the players are into uh, role-playing looking for. And you know, even within a horror uh, situation, I think a lot of players have the expectation that uh, most of them will get out alive, and that over the course of a campaign, you'll lose a few characters every now and again. But it is not a meat grinder, so you have to make sure that your desire to run a meat grinder game is matched by the desire of the players to have their characters uh, repeatedly put through meat grinders. Are there any other sort of opening uh, steps that you want to take in setting up survival horror, Ken?
1: Well, I, I think that you touch on it when you mentioned that uh, you have to let go of your general player orientation if you're going to play in survival horror, which means the GM has to get buy-in, because survival horror is a fantasy of powerlessness, not a fantasy of power, although there are individual power fantasy moments, especially in your sort of Kindle zombie fiction, where it turns out that the first thing you have to do when the zombies uh, infect the world is go kill your uh, ex-wife and her new husband, uh, because they're zombies, not because you're a horrible psychopath. But, you know, these things must be done. So there's a power fantasy element in it. And obviously things like the sort of second act of most good zombie movies have a little of the power fantasy where, um, you've armored up and you're in the shopping mall or whatever. You've got your chainsaw working. And there's a, there's a moment where it's like, Oh, we can do this. We can do this. We can take out the, uh, the zombies. Uh, we'll be fine. But for it to be survival horror as opposed to survival adventure or something, there does indeed need to be that moment where the turn happens and you realize that you are either fundamentally powerless on a on a large level so you must have large goals that are disappointed or the 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 insidious unstoppable nature of the evil and corruption must become apparent as you begin to get bitten and infected and as you begin to turn on each other that's another strong element of survival horror fiction and media is pvp uh, tension leading to possible PvP violence. A lot of uh, game groups have worked very hard to avoid having to do that, and survival horror, the genre drives that, so you want to be aware of that happening. In the fiction of survival horror, characters' resources dwindle away, even though in many cases they're next to an entire abandoned city. So the combination of shopping and power fantasy that drives a lot of uh, role-playing will be difficult to talk yourself out of if no, no, we're going to go and have a combat where we conquer the Piggly Wiggly and take all the stuff that we just lost. That's going to be pointless, both, you know, tactically, usually, and also strategically, because you're not actually advancing the game. You're just doing the same thing over and over again.
0: Yeah, you, you can uh, hit the Piggly Wiggly in a quick, quick supply run, which is very dangerous, but you can never, uh, you know, wherever you set down roots, it's just a question as to how long your Uh, defense point whether it's the piggly wiggly or a farm or a prison or whatever uh, you decide to sort of hop from one to the other how long you're going to be able to hold out and you're i think if you're envisioning a survival horror campaign uh, like a zombie campaign where there are moments where you uh, you know achieve a momentary uh, quiet and and safety which will inevitably be breached you then i think want to have um, some set of powerful Uh, inter-character dynamics and of course the thing that comes to my mind would be drama system uh, in order to uh, make it about the interrelationships between the survivors as they try to survive and as they uh, decide how much they're going to sacrifice of themselves in order to keep on living and make it about their relationships and that you know that's the walking dead as it's a uh, a soap opera or character drama depending on how you want to look at it in which the uh, the pressure being placed on them is the fact that they're uh, in a zombie apocalypse, and so you've uh, the more time that you allow the players to hole up in any one particular place with each other, the more y- you've got to find a way to make that the time they spend there interesting while they're turtling. Something else has to be happening, and so you can create some sort of uh, set of mechanics that uh, reflects the. Uh, psychic toll that it's uh, taking on them and how long you go before you make a mistake, right? Because that's the uh, other thing about survival horror. It's not about perfect tacticians uh, making the uh, ideal plan and therefore winning. It's about, uh, you know, you're doomed, you know that eventually something's going to go wrong. And when it does go wrong, it's often because one of you has acted on impulse to make a horrible mistake that brings disaster crashing down on everybody. And that, too, uh, overturns a lot of assumptions about what a role-playing game experience is on its head, because uh, it's, you know, especially in a traditional sort of F-20 adventure format, the idea is to, you know, nobody make a mistake. And uh, in survival horror, it's not interesting unless the mistakes that people make unless the things that lead them toward their doom are not just sort of random external events but are triggered by their own flaws. So I think what you would want to do is uh, create for each character going in what is the temptation that will lead you away from the absolute smart thing. And that will be your sort of guiding flaw, kind of an anti-drive, as, as it were. Uh, in Gumshoe, there are drives that make you act the way you would in a, uh, a horror game, and so here you have temptations that make you act the way you would in survival horror, where you want to survive, but you also everybody has something about them that leads them to go into danger, and that might be, you know, heroic things like you're an altruist or a hot dog, or it could be that, you know, you are uh, withdrawing from heroin and need uh, need your opiates and are willing to you know, stay a little too long in the pharmacy for those or that you or you don't handle authority well. And so when the general says you have to keep this door watch, you're like, I don't have to do nothing. Exactly. And so you create some sort of set and it might be a mechanical thing where you uh, not only are you at risk of going uh, insane, but you're at risk of going into your uh, giving into your temptations and making dumb moves so that uh, as you go into the pharmacy, uh, if you're uh temptation is addiction, you then have to make a temptation role to see, you know, how long you linger uh, going through all of the uh, various opiates and therefore uh, possibly lead the whole group into uh, danger. So you need uh, some sort of set of uh, a suspense that revolves around the question of how long do you make it through the meat grinder and, uh, you know, when you fall into the meat grinder, is it because somebody else pushed you because of their temptation or is it because uh you acted on uh your temptation to not do the tactical thing so you need to sort of take tactical play and turn it inside out i would think
1: so you can take uh these temptations and as you resist them you're still lo- t- to resist a temptation costs you emotional hit points right your you know whatever we're using to indicate your ability to keep it together which is not the same thing as you know panic or 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 fear rolls this is just the survival under the daily grind of dealing with the general and dealing with the other people and, you know, what you have to spend in order to stay calm and copacetic. Um, uh, resisting the temptation costs you those points. And uh, because it's yet more emotional turmoil that you're putting yourself through uh, seemingly for no reason, although obviously for the re- the very good reason that if you don't, uh, you're making the whole compound more vulnerable to zombies.
0: And uh, you also, as, as we suggested earlier, uh, it's also a resource management game. So it's not only you're not just managing your emotional resources of your imperviousness to the temptation that will inevitably drag you down, but also just uh, do you have enough. Shotgun shells, do you, uh, you uh, lost the uh, box of grenades, you're running out of food, Uh, that you uh, have the characters, you know, track their resources, and every so often you're going to have to go on a supply run. The Fallout shelter has run out of canned food and it's time to go out again and and get something. Now, the zombie format is not the only form of survival horror. The uh, sort of uh, Hillbilly cannibal uh, subgenre is another one, and that's I think particularly focused on, for our purposes, on uh, quick one-shot runs. And that is, you know, you are uh, all trapped uh, in a one small environment with a, a predator or group of predators. For example, your archetypal uh, chainsaw cannibal family, and the question is, you know, who who bites it last? Uh, and uh you know can you overcome the uh chainsaw cannibals before they overcome all of you and that i think is probably more kind of a, a tactical game it's less about uh your fault bringing you down but just a uh, simple uh it's almost sort of basically a man versus uh nature setup except uh instead of nature it's uh, beastly, uh, degenerate, uh, humans who are basically functioning, uh, like predatory animals, but are, are more terrifying because they're more capable and uh, smarter and have chainsaws, uh, unlike, uh, your normal other animal predators.
1: And another, you know, they could also just be the sort of people who know the land and you don't. So you could be Spanish conquistadors running away through the Yucatan, being chased down by Maya, or you could be the like the two crooks in the great, great, great British non-supernatural survival horror movie, uh, This Is Not a Love Song, where they've offended uh, a, a local farmer by uh, uh, killing, I think it's his daughter, and so all the farmers in Yorkshire uh, are hunting these guys across the Yorkshire moors, and they're, of course, London petty criminals, so they have no knowledge of what they're doing. Uh, you have something like Cloverfield where you're in a survival horror sort of a setup because you're running away from the, you know, swarm of monsters that have spawned off the Cloverfield monster. Uh, everything is in chaos. You don't know what's going on, who to trust. Uh, you're trying to get to a refuge point, which is another thing that happens a great deal in survival horror. You can have a survival horror in which, uh, you're just, uh, temporarily trapped in a labyrinth or a, or a cave or a something with the bad guys. So uh, something like the descent where they go down into the cave and sure enough, the cave is full of chuds. And so they have to sort of move through it and figure out a way out of the cave. And obviously in a role-playing game, because you need to have more inputs than just it's dark and there are chuds. You'd have more clues as to what the chuds are or how to get away from them or what the nature of the cave was at least, or there'd be a secondary task that you're trying to achieve, you know, find the Holy grail or something. And that would add the the other uh, dynamics besides combat and hide, which are, you know, all you really need for a film, but you need more of that uh, for a game, I think.
0: Right. And many of those offer the possibility for escape at the end. So it's not necessarily inevitable that everybody is going to be chewed up, but some of you will get out and, and some of you won't. And so, again, there's a uh, you might try and find a way to have a competitive tension in uh, your setup, whether it's a. Uh, chuds in a cave or farmers in yorkshire where if you can find a device that means that well when it comes to it uh you're gonna have to make a choice some people are going to be able to get out but some people aren't and uh the part of the dynamic then becomes the uh, players negotiating uh which one of them uh you know gets the uh gets the advantage and so you know can be well there's there's one gun and uh uh do you use that gun to uh fire at the people coming after you or do you use it to force your weaker friends to remain behind to get uh, uh captured while you escape and so look for ways to introduce those sort of uh uh pvp every man for himself uh moments in which the the tension is between uh do we all uh you know band together but oh wait a minute it's there's a prisoners dilemma you're the one you know if, Uh, If you're the first one to betray everybody else, you have a better chance of uh, surviving and make that uh, kind of the uh, emotional driver to go along with these sort of external uh, physical goals of trying to get out of the space, whatever it is, and away from the predators, wherever they are. And on that note, I think we should uh, attempt to escape from this segment and uh, via this passage, which looks a lot like a commercial, and then into our next The Escapist calls it gaming's most insane supplement.
1: After a century of secrecy, three months of nonstop publicity, and a record-breaking Kickstarter
0: campaign, the Dracula Dossier is finally available for you, the home listener. Not just Dracula Unredacted, the true first draft of Bram Stoker's novel, an after-action report for British intelligence, annotated by three generations of MI6 analysts, but also the massive director's handbook that allows you to follow the clues dropped in the pages and in the margins of that uncanny document. Follow them, that is, to any of 200 different encounters, eerie objects, dangerous locations, and conspiratorial organizations, and enigmatic NPCs, any of which can be an innocent, or turned by Edom. Or a minion of Dracula himself. Pretty clever, eh, Robin? Bet you wish you'd thought of that. Uh Uh-huh,
1: yeah. Thus creating an improvisational collaborative campaign for Knight's Black Agents, strangely
0: similar to Robin's own Armitage Files campaign for Trail of Cthulhu. Strangely, but with more vampires. Way more vampires. Because the Dracula dossier blows the lid off Operation Edom, the rogue MI6 task force using Dracula to stop terror in the 21st century. But Dracula cannot be used. And Edom cannot be trusted. So open the dossier. And follow the clues. To kill Dracula for good. Yeah, that'll work. So let's sum up. The Dracula dossier is two books. Check. Both stand alone. Check. But combined, they create an unprecedented... Really, Ken, unprecedented? Of unprecedented scope? How's that? Oh, uh, let's see. Both books add up to something like 800 pages. So yeah, an improvisational, collaborative campaign of unprecedented scope. Check. And Dracula Unredacted, that Stoker's real first draft annotated by the MI6... And the Director's Handbook, a massive collection of multifaceted encounters... ...are both available at the Pelgrane website right now! Check! And, mate, the game is mine, I think. No, Robin, it's theirs. The retinal scan that you had to undergo before listening to this segment and the sliding uh, bookcase that leads into a top-secret war room, tell us that we have once more entered the top-secret confines of the Trade Craft Hut. And Ken, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about Tom Dryberg, and you can't tell the story of Tom Dryberg without mentioning Maxwell Knight, uh, one-time head of MI5, and we said, hey, we should do a whole segment on him, and as is not our usual want. I thought we would do that follow up pretty well right away. And so, uh <laughs> assuming uh, that the listener has not heard that segment and needs to be completely reintroduced to uh Max Knight, why don't you introduce our listeners to Max Knight?
1: Okay. Charles Maxwell Knight. He began as apparently a British fascist. Uh he was uh a impoverished uh gentleman. His his father spent the the family money on mistresses. And so he sort of found himself uh, at uh, loose ends, believing that he should be doing better than he is, which is always a, a fine motivator for people to join radical political movements. And in this case, he joins the British fascists and is immediately tapped by the head of the British fascists to run their intelligence network.
0: And uh, when is this, roughly? Uh This
1: is 1922, 23, something like that. Um Yeah, he joins in 23, and then... Very uh, uh, rapidly, uh, as I say, he rises to the position of their intelligence head, and he uh, puts together dossiers on all the enemies of the British fascists. He starts running double agents into the trade union movement, uh, both political recruiting agents and also people keeping an eye out for communists. And sure enough, the head of MI5 realizes that we've got this guy who is running his own private spy ring of about a 100 people, uh, many of whom uh, speak foreign languages, have connections with foreign populations, and they think, well, it would be a lot easier for us if we just recruited Knight into MI5 and let him keep running his little fascist police force, his little fascist secret police, but as an MI5 network. And being a patriotic Englishman, he agreed and uh joined uh m i five and continued to work for the security services pretty much up until uh, i believe the fifties when he finally had to retire because of his uh his health, which uh was i don't know what it was broken by uh per- t- per se but it uh well i mean he was born in nineteen hundred so by the late fifties his health was probably broken by the stress of the war and everything else, although he had a secondary uh activity that he engaged in to i guess calm himself down or or keep his little mind busy, which was a natural history. He loved animals. He had a fairly large uh, menagerie of them that he would keep in his various uh, London flats and country homes, much to the consternation of his three wives. <laughs> and he was also an avid uh, birder and other naturalist. He would go to uh, the zoo and practice his bird calls uh, to uh, attract the attention of other birds. Uh, there is a, a lovely anecdote of him uh, particularly, uh, delighting in raising cuckoos because, of course, these birds are the ones that infiltrate their way into other <laughs> birds' nests and, uh, and, and, and mess with them. And so that was sort of his, his spy half and his naturalism half going together. He had, um, snakes and lots of birds. As I mentioned, he had a, a dog, like, uh, like, like many people do. Uh, salamanders. He had a bear, uh, a little, a little bear. It wasn't a big bear. Um, he had a, a bush baby. He had a baboon, uh, monkeys. Um, uh, and, uh, a number of parents that also, uh, would, uh, curse at his various visitors and, and again, at his wives, um, toads, he had toads. So he was, he, he was a man
0: of, of many, he was a man of parts as we used to say. Yes. And as we mentioned in the previous segment, he was a, a thriller writer. Yes. He wrote, Uh, I think he was friends with Dennis Wheatley. Mm -hmm. He was a, uh. Homophobic closeted gay man Mm -hmm. and uh, had all sorts of interesting. Well, who better uh, than he to
1: know that uh, homosexuals were a security risk? (laughs) Although, although we should say uh, that he was pioneering in employing female secret agents, which. Very few people did at the time, certainly in England. And he believed that uh, women were even better spies than men. And so, every time he got the possib- the option, he would uh, try and recruit women to be agents for MI5. Uh, and one of his uh, many of his very best agents were women. So good for him.
0: Right, and uh, not only uh, did uh, Dennis Wheatley know him, but Ian Fleming uh, knew him, and therefore made him the uh, basis. For M, although uh, I think M in the uh, novels and in the movies is a much less uh, <laughs> colorful figure than the than the real uh, Maxwell. And, Knight. and
1: also, M is probably a uh, a blend of Maxwell Knight and Mansfield Cumming, who was the actual head of uh, MI6, and he signed himself C, and Maxwell Knight would sign himself M as a sort of parody of or imitation of. Uh, Mansfield coming. So it's, it's not that Knight is M and you have to imagine M with a, a, a menagerie and a number of, uh, of gay lovers because in the novels, M is an admiral. So M is, is quite clearly also C, if that made any sense.
0: Right. Um, so, uh, you do not necessarily have to imagine that he has a kinkajou in his, in his uh, desk or in his pocket. Bond.
1: Yes. <laughs> one of, I forget if it was, uh, one of his, uh, is his, I think it was his middle wife, Joan Miller, uh, used to say that you could never tell what was in Max's pocket. Uh, which <laughs> it might be uh, viper eggs or who knows what else it might be in his pocket. I think that she was one of the many beautiful women who fell in love with Maxwell Knight and discovered too late that that was emotional effort wasted.
0: So are there great Maxwell Knight stories? Uh, we've, we covered the one where uh, Tom Dryberg uh, takes uh, him and Dennis Wheatley to dinner with Aleister Crowley. He was also interested in the occult. Uh, are there uh, other uh, sort of uh, classic anecdotes?
1: Well, I mean, there's the sad anecdote of his first wife Gladys, who uh, fell in love with him and discovered uh, that he had no interest in uh, ravishing redheads, uh, and died in 1936. Uh, and was and her death was sort of the topic of of, of great scandal and might have driven him out of uh, MI5. Uh, but it, uh, turned out it was just suicide and they could prove it. And also, he had uncovered the Woolwich Arsenal plot right around the same time. So, uh, he was sort of, uh, too useful to MI5 for them to get rid of him. He, um, uh, he broke the Kent Wolkoff affair, which was between a woman named Anna Wolkoff, who was a member of the Right Club, which were, uh, pro, uh, Axis, pro German, uh, British people and Tyler Kent, who is a cipher clerk from the U.S. Embassy. And they, uh, stole American documents, uh, which were c- uh, communiques between Churchill and FDR and tried to, and passed them on to Germany. But because Maxwell Knight had infiltrated the right club pretty thoroughly, uh, he, w- he was able to uh, arrest them and, uh, and try them for violating the official secrets act. So his, you know, fascist sympathies did not extend to foreign fascists, right? He's he's not pro-German. He just thinks England should be fascist, which is, uh, I suppose, it may be a distinction without much of a difference, but it is enough of a difference to make him an effective uh, head of the uh, counter-subversion unit of MI5. He never actually rises to run all of MI5. He's never the director, but he is the director of a uh, of an of an elite team of of people who look into extremists, which course is part of what makes him so much fun for uh, gaming because whatever your player characters are involved in, they're either going to be looking into the people that Knight is looking into because they're weird cults and whatnot, or um, uh, Nazis, or th- um, uh, they're the kind of people he is looking into. So uh, he makes a great uh, uh, connection for that. His elite agents in uh, MI5B5B, which is the name of his section, were, by the way,
0: known as Knight's Black <laughs> Agents. So good for you. <laughs> Maxwell So uh and when does he uh switch from running his own fascist network to uh coming out of the cold as it were
1: Well he's he runs his own fascist network um and he, he gets recruited into the into MI5 very early right in 25 uh, so he starts being a independent fascist spy in 24 and then he gets recruited into MI5 in 25 so he's running uh you know uh, the British counter subversion team uh, for the next 20 years until the end of the war, after the war, obviously all the security services sort of stand down a bit. Uh, he, after the war also starts doing his nature programs on the radio. So you would come home and you would listen to Uncle Max, right? On, on Sundays. And he would talk about um, how in, in the pond, you can find, Oh, the bullfrog and it's the king of the pond and all, and all this. And he would, it would tell you all about um uh nature and uh kids would go out and explore ponds and be very, very quiet and still and keep your eyes open. And so he was sort of imbuing tradecraft into the next generation of young Britons by telling them how to stalk uh and sneak up to uh to to nesting birds and whatnot on the radio. So he's he's a uh sort of a <laughs> he's he's sort of a an interesting guy and then and I, I suspect that because among the people that he recruited into, uh, his network were people like Guy Burgess, who were, uh, members of the Anglo-German Fellowship as their cover. I, I suspect his star dimmed a little bit after, uh, the fifties, after the early fifties, and he would be, he was, continued to be an embarrassing weirdo.
0: Right. So he's, <laughs> he's active, uh, throughout the thirties, which means yeah. that, uh, if we're going to put him in a scenario, we probably want to put him in a Trail of Cthulhu scenario and, There are so many ways to go with this. He's already interested in the occult. How would you, first of all, uh, what is sort of the ideal scenario to have uh, Maxwell Knight as a uh, figure in?
1: Well, I think the ideal scenario is one in which the uh, the agents, the heroes, are investigating something going on in London in the thirties, and the something has connections to the occult, and it has connections to some sort of foreign agent. And Maxwell Knight becomes either their cigarette-smoking man, the guy who sort of thwarts them every turn and takes all their evidence away or he becomes their deep throat the guy who says you know you're getting very close you should continue to look into the activities around the bulgarian embassy and then they go there and it turns out he's just running them as his agents unofficially right so i i like the idea of of knight being this sort of mysterious weird figure and they go out to his country house and you know the place is surrounded by baboons and, and bear cubs and whatnot and so you have a uh, I mean, that's just a really good scene. And then when you combine that with his sort of Crowley uh, roots, uh, he and Crowley hang out for a good amount of time in the, uh, in the, in the late thirties as well. So the connection to Crowley can, can play in if you want to, uh, use him either as a, as a red herring or as the actual, you know, one of the figures that there, there there's some, you know, some use can be had of the great beast, I guess.
0: And, uh, do you have a, a closing anecdote for us? While he was uh, but a young MI5
1: uh, sprig, he uh, infiltrated the general strike and helped to break it. He also uh, burgled the offices of the Communist Party, which was perhaps fair game, but also burgled the offices of the Labor Party, which is what I think a number of people thought might have been going a little too far. Um He uh, played the drums. He he, he was a, a jazz drummer in addition to his other many talents. Uh He was uh, the guy... Uh, on MI5's side, who ran the Igor Guzenko investigation. If we all remember, uh, the, the guy who defected in Canada and, uh, had all manner of exciting stories and also did TV shows, only, only with a bag over his head, not about <laughs> animals. He wrote a book called How to Keep a Gorilla, which I think shows
0: uh, a you know, relatively promise. small demographic. But if you're looking sure. for
1: gorilla spies, I think, uh, Maxwell Knight may be your doorway to that as well um and he was also one of the people who fingered anthony blunt as a spy uh before other people thought that he was a spy so in the one hand he had recruited uh burgess and n- again being knight he may have recruited him in order to you know have him on the inside pissing out as they say uh as sort of as a as recruited him as an intentional double uh without telling burgess that he'd been doubled so feeding uh, misinformation because he did use that information to find out for example that tom dryberg uh, was uh, passing information uh, to uh, uh, to the KGB. Although, again,
0: T- Tom Vreiberg was passing information to everyone, so it's not the most brilliant of deductions, I guess. In the uh, Dracula dossier, part of the backstory, of course, is that MI6 was uh, running Dracula as an operative uh, in World War II. How would you uh, have Max uh, Knight as part of that backstory?
1: Um, I think Maxwell Knight, if you're running a game set in the 19, if you're running the Dracula dossier and you have an actual ongoing Edom adventure going on in the forties, Maxwell Knight becomes kind of the player on the other side, right? He knows about vampires and knows about magic because of his connection to Crowley. And so he might be one of the few people in conventional Britain who you c- either have to, uh, hide your activities really, really carefully from or who you might be able to trust to break open Edom, if you're playing in the 1940s, if you're playing in the present day and looking back on it, I think again, Knight can be one of the investigators whose, um, uh, you know, whose, uh, disciples, maybe a, a, a very old, but obviously once beautiful woman, uh, is someone who got sort of tangentially, uh, brought in, uh, by Dracula d- during his, uh, his, his moments of, um, uh, extending his power back into England. And so. Uh, that woman who used to work for Knight and has met Dracula becomes sort of a, a conduit for, for Knight's investigations in the past, uh, down to you in the future. I, we, we mentioned the Wolkoff-Kent affair, I believe, in, uh, the Dracula dossier, in fact. So, uh, we have a connection to Knight that way. And again, because Knight is connected to the Philby ring, if you've got a Soviet vampire program, uh, he may know something about that. If you've got a German vampire program, he knows about that.
0: And so that then gives you that moment where you can have your, uh, elderly uh, British spy ladies say, "Yes, we are part of a crew called Knight's Black agents and that's that the perfect line to uh, end a uh, an episode on uh, in your game and or begin a flashback or begin a flashback uh, and certainly the proper line on which to end this segment and move via a commercial to the next. the werewolves of Dacia? They
1: are the descendants of the other son, uh, Romulus's twin... That Rita. sounds fabulous. Where can I learn
0: more? In volume one of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at Drive-Thru RPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X... Logically related, but related by their love of role playing. That's the best of Phoenix volumes one to three. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfageln. Ask for Askfageln by name. And don't forget, that's F E N I X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish.
1: The lowering cobwebs, the rumble of lightning outside, and the presence of eyes watching you, watching you, always watching you, tell us that we have entered the horror hut. And here in the horror hut, uh, we move over the creaking floorboards and open the weirdly coffin-shaped box to find scary dolls! No, scary dolls! Scary dolls! And now, Robin, we've discussed tiny dolls before, but these are scary dolls. Is there a line that you would draw between tiny dolls and scary dolls? Or do you believe
0: well, that the, the tiny dolls was specifically we we're doing a, a, a in the news segment where uh, about getting dolls that have your features on them. Right. And so for this one, I thought we would zoom out a bit and look at the uh, terrifying doll subgenre and going to look at its roots and why it makes it what makes it scary and then look for ways to to do a scary doll story uh in your game that is actually uh, scary
1: <laughs> that does that does not immediately begin with in the house you see an old antique children's doll we destroy it, <laughs> we, destroy it. Yes, <laughs> we smash it to pieces and burn the pieces and dump the ashes in acid
0: right so uh scary dolls appear uh not only in fiction but in uh Fortiana there's the famous example of the doll Annabelle, which many years later was turned into a spin-off movie from the Conjuring series, which uh, uh, I stopped watching at about the half-hour mark, having determined that it was uh, uninteresting. But at any rate, um, more prominently, you've got your uh, Trilogy of Terror uh, from the 70s TV series, with with Karen Black being menaced by uh, a a tiny uh, South Sea Island style doll. Of course, you've got uh, uh, your Chucky... There's a uh, film out now with a larger sort of life-sized uh, boy-child doll called The Boy, which uh, has a creepy trailer, if uh, nothing else. And so I guess the thing about uh, dolls, first of all, is that there's something that's often in your room when you're a kid, and when the light on them is wrong, they're uh, alarming. There's the uh, also the poltergeist clown doll that is, uh, I think, really effectively... Uh, dials into uh, childhood terror and just the fact that a lot of older antique dolls look uh, really alarming there's the whole uncanny valley aspect of here's something that looks kind of human but isn't and especially uh, once age has had its way at an older doll they look really creepy or you know all you've got to do is have a little distress on it or Have it lose an eye or some cracks on the surface, and uh, it becomes uh, quite unnerving to uh, look at. The uh, original Annabelle story, which I guess I'm going the long way around to get to, is (laughs) that uh, a group of uh, uh, student nurses living in New York had this doll that started moving around and uh, finally uh, wound up supposedly attacking them and scratching them. And the hilarious thing about this is that uh, in the uh, real reported story, uh, real, of course, in... uh, a question mark quotes. Uh, the doll was a uh, terrifyingly possessed Raggedy Ann doll, which is not a detail that makes it through uh, into the uh, movies that it appears in.
1: Not least because I suspect Raggedy Ann is a trademark and the people who own it are not interested in allowing you to turn their
0: beloved children's icon into a feature of horror. Yes, that is one of two very good reasons not to do that. And the other very good reason not to do that is because it is ridiculous uh, and uh, hard to make scary and so the question i guess for how you want to create your own doll stories is the very uh, there's a set of difficult constraints that you have to overcome in order to have uh, a doll actually become frightening in a piece of fiction or a movie or uh, a role-playing game adventure and one of this is sort of the how do you make that thing actually alarming and, and you know it's smaller than you are it's usually made out of something that's easily enough to destroy you know it might might look unnerving but how do you how do you sustain that and one of the answers is well you don't sustain that it's just one of a number of horrifying things that happens as in uh, the clown doll and, and poltergeist and another one is you sort of make it into this sort of aspirational 80s anti-hero uh, slasher the way that the chucky series does and uh, in that, it's uh, you know uh, you are not after a while uh, so much as frightened of Chucky the way that you're you know you stop being fr- frightened of Freddy in the nightmare movies, but you're vicariously enjoying the mayhem that Freddy wreaks on, or in this case, Chucky wreaks on probably mostly deserving uh, victims. So how do we go about uh, solving those uh, difficult problems to make a uh, a new Doll story that is actually scary or unnerving? Well, um, I think first of all, you have to come up with a
1: reason that the doll cannot be destroyed. Uh, and that can either be because, like Chucky, it always comes back, right? It, it, it rebuilds itself or it's just immortal or it's full of, you know, uh, concentrated juju of one kind or another, or the doll is too important to uh, the player character's other goals for them to just destroy it outright. That Either it's, you know, the only thing holding back Satan from taking over the earth is as long as he's contained in the little doll, he can't come flying out and conquer everyone. Or they know that if they can get the doll back and put it in the glass case, the way that uh, Annabelle is put in her glass case by the uh, conjuring dudes, they can use it as a channel to the spirit realm or as a source of magic power for all their other artifacts or some reason that the doll can't just be destroyed. And one reason, you know, for a, maybe for a mid part of a campaign is the doll is just hard to find, right? That there's the opening bit where, um, they come into the house and they're looking for the haunt and you say, Oh, it's a child's bedroom. And you know, you see a million little blinking eyes looking at you and they're children's dolls. And if the family's still there, you can't just take all their dolls away and burn them because then you're thrown out of the house and can't be it. Uh, and then you go in the next scene and you're like, gosh, it." you're not sure, but it looks like there's, is could one of those dolls be missing the, the, the videotape you took of the room is unclear on that question because when you look at the videotape it looks like a couple of them are moving around and so you sort of can hide the doll amongst a bunch of other dolls and then once it started moving around it's no easier to find than your cat if you're looking for your cat right you know they could be under the bed it could be under the couch it could be in the closet it could be uh lurking up in the in the in the heating grate waiting to jump down on you you know you never you don't know where the doll is and it's working its evil doll magic at a remove or at a distance, especially if the doll can emulate other toys, it can sort of make it look like, oh no, that's the haunted doll, that big, um, uh, Victorian baby doll, not this other doll that's actually the Raggedy Ann that's your
0: really haunted doll. Right. And so you can have the idea that, you know, the, uh, you can let the players go in and smash the doll in what seems like an easy solution to the thing. And it's like, oh, now that the monster doll is the ghost of a monster doll and, uh, it's, no longer physically tethered to anything. It doesn't have substance until it needs to have substance. So essentially it becomes the creepy manifestation of a, of a kind of a poltergeist. And then it can, uh, and I think that's part of why these movies are scary is that the ways that they can harm you seem very real and very mundane. And so, you know, you can uh, wake up in the night and they've uh, set a fire somewhere or it's cut your brake line and the, uh, Another part of the scary doll horror is that no one else can, will necessarily think that it's, uh, real. And so, uh, you may be dealing with this cursed object. You threw it out in the dumpster and you go, uh, and it still starts to bedevil you. So you go back to the dumpster and look for it and it's gone. And then all of these terrible things start to happen in your life that are, that are going awry and, again, it's a question of well, you've got to find it in order and then find how to destroy it, so that you've got a couple of avenues of investigation. Another challenge though is that the confrontation uh between the evil doll and the uh person in a in a horror story are, are usually sort of a one-on-one thing. So I suppose later on we can do a gumshoe uh one-to-one fear itself scenario where you're uh, up against a uh scary killer doll, but how would we uh, make, enlarge the threat so that a group of people can all be equally frightened by the uh, trouble caused by a a doll, and I guess part of that is you can do an investigative game where you are tracking the victims, Uh, you know, it's a typical follow the trail of victims to get the monster, and uh, you know that these eventually figure out that it's being done by a doll, but you're not necessarily uh, able to Uh, You know, it's not coming at you, and so you are more horrified by what it is doing to uh, its victims than what it is doing directly to threaten you.
1: Another thing you can do uh, is you can play little kids, right? The the protagonists aren't, you know, uh, big, strong investigators. They're little kids, and little kids have toys, uh, and they have dolls, and if they smash up their dolls, their mom will get really bad, and, you know, they may be grounded and forced to sit in the bedroom. You just look at the pieces of that doll that you destroyed. You just sit there in that bedroom alone with that broken doll. You know, all manner of things that can talk kids out of doing it. Or they can just, or you can just say it's a rule, right? You're playing kids. You can't destroy the doll. Here's the game. And you sort of let the player characters come up with the reason. Why won't you destroy the doll? What's what? What's keeping you from just tossing this in the furnace and and taking your lumps Uh, and, and so you can, uh, have that kind of a, uh, of a thing. And then it's easier to menace a bunch of, uh, actors, uh, with a doll. If the actors themselves are not very powerful or have other constraints on them. And that's the sort of thing where it's like, no, that's, it's three siblings. And then their cousin is coming to stay with them uh, for the summer. And that's when all hell breaks loose. The little doll, you know, comes to life and decides it's going to make life misery for the cousin. You, you can come up with any number of, of domestic arrangements in which there are a number of somewhat related kid player characters none of whom necessarily uh are such good friends that they will believe each other when they say no seriously the doll came to life and tried to eat me
0: a a great twist on the uh, kids versus evil doll thing is again they get to smash the doll of what feels like kind of early on and then the next morning at school the new kid shows up and the new kid looks like an alarming flesh and blood version of the doll that you just smashed and all the adults think that the kid is just normal and you don't as kids you don't understand why people aren't freaking out at the way this little kid looks like and uh, of course you're just scolded for uh, uh, treating the kid as uh, uh, you know making fun of his appearance that's a terrible thing to do you know this poor Uh, child is somewhat homely but of course you would never say that that's rude and then you have you know the the doll has somehow incarnated into a uh, flesh and blood little human who is now uh, coming after you and that gets you also back into that you know the parents don't believe you when uh, you accuse the uh, the new kid of uh, having uh, killed your uh, cat or uh, you know done this other litany of things where you know and you've got uh, now got an actual, you know, ambulatory uh, child who is uh, out to get you. And that can also uh, bring in sort of the, the contrast of the uh, innocent and the sinister that I think sort of powers the whole uh, doll horror subgenre. Yeah, the, the notion of dolls being tiny people or
1: people being enormous dolls is, you know, it's a big thread in the whole scary doll subgenre, right? The um uh, the Devil Doll, the, the Lionel Barrymore movie that's based on Burn, Witch, Burn by A. Merritt, is about a guy with a sort of magico-scientific process that shrinks people and turns them into dolls.
0: Let's take them down into the basement and make, make them, them small. Uh,
1: and then uh, we've already talked about um, uh, Boy, which is a, sort of about a life-size doll. And I think there's another creepy um, uh, 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 child abuse horror A movie called May, which is about a girl who may or may not be a doll or who sort of takes her own agonies out on this doll. And so the, the connection between humans and dolls and sewing pieces to other things is and all the sort of that
0: you yourself as a kid will be turned into a doll. Yeah, is, that's I think an outcome from some of these as well.
1: Yeah. So there's so there's any number of sort of the one of the the scary things is that this very plastic boundary between dolls and 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 people and especially between dolls and little kids that um uh, that that provides the horror with a lot of its sort of juice as as you go through it.
0: And it would be interesting also to do uh. A little kid scenario where it's like a cursed action figure where uh you you know it's and again you know it can be a commercially available sort of uh pop culture figure that gets melted and turns evil or it can be you know you're the you get this rare action figure that's packed in a star wars blister pack and you think it's a a star wars character but then you get at home and you uh you realize Wait, i don't know what character this isn't the character it's supposed to be when i look at it on the internet and then it's so, well i got to leave it in its in its case and then it, you know the next day that blister pack is ripped open and you could uh, sort of have a, a fun kind of satirical uh twist cuz you know we're used to the victorian doll uh that the girl uh, your sister brings into the house that turns evil but you know what if there's a a toy that's uh, aimed at boys that uh you know somehow is a uh, a representative of all the the dark uh testosterone uh, impulses that are bubbling through you even as you are a uh, a young boy and that could be an interesting uh, sort of inversion of the genre.
1: I, I should I should mention um at this juncture the movie Small Soldiers which if you haven't seen it is a masterpiece but also uh four reels uh little images of Darth Vader are used in Voodoo Altars as uh embodiments of Gede, the spirit of death. So you know the classic, uh you know, harassed dad. He's on his way home. He's forgotten to buy his kid a present. He walks into a a, a shop and he sees that they've got a, a, an, a an a friend or an altar to uh, Gay Day. He steals or buys the Darth Vader from the uh, from the shopkeeper and gives it to the kid. And of course, it's not just Darth Vader anymore. It's Darth Vader with Gay Day in him, and so he's got voodoo powers and he's a
0: voodoo doll only in reverse. Awesome. Well, that's a, a great image to uh, close on and to prepare ourselves for the. Crack to our final hot of this episode.
1: This episode is also brought to you by the shadowy strike force that is Arc Dream Publishing. Their
0: Kickstarter for the Delta Green role-playing game has come to an end. With smashing success, ...funding a case locker full of stretch goals. From scenarios to setting notes to fiction and even a play. A play about a certain yellow king. But as the team of Dennis Detweiler, Adam Scott Glancy, Kenneth Haidt, Shane Ivey, and Greg Stolci... ...frantically burn the midnight oil to bring you all that rogue counterintelligence goodness you can still catch a case of Delta Green fever. With such products as the source book that started it all, the original Delta Green.
1: Countdown its update to a fear-drenched new millennium. Or play the new Delta Green game with
0: free quick-start rules. They come with a scenario and pre-generated characters. Check out such terrifying fiction anthologies as extraordinary renditions with a story by yours truly or tales from failed anatomies with a special guest story by yours truly not to mention strange authorities or dare to swipe the pages of the twisted grandpappy of Cthulhu zines the unspeakable oath and stay tuned to this audio space for more delta green role-playing news plus an acid-tinged hint or two of the fall of delta green the 60 set gumshoe standalone game by our very own kenneth height How's that going, Ken? I'm writing it even as we speak, with two of my extra arms and my auxiliary brain case. So brace yourself for the coming flood of Delta Green from Arc Dream Publishing. As we wend our way up the cobweb stairs, we... Look at the portrait of Madame Blavatsky, which is glowering down at us as usual, but we ignore her bad attitude and head on in to the Edwardian parlor where the consulting occultist uh, waits for us in his uh, overstuffed chair, ready to tell us about another figure of the occult. And this time uh, we're going to go for a pretty core figure of occult lore and that is Paracelsus. Why does he call himself Paracelsus? You might ask? Well, that's because he might otherwise have to refer to himself by his real full name, which is Philippus, Areolus, Theophrastus, Bombastus, von Hohenheim. Uh, he lived from 1493 to 1541 and as you might guess from that uh, set of dates, he is a yet another example of your Renaissance man who, while there was all sorts of stuff lying around waiting to be discovered, he discovered a whole bunch of it, like uh, toxicology and the uh, possibility of psychosomatic uh, conditions. Uh, some of his thoughts sort of uh, prefigured uh, germ theory. He was a uh, uh, a doctor, but also uh, an occultist. And so, Ken, uh, do you want to de- delve into any of these uh, sort of... Uh, more scientific things that he uh, engaged in, or do we want to dive in right into his importance to uh, occultists and students of the occult?
1: Well, we should mention first of all, that uh, the reason he picks the name Paracelsus is that it means better than Celsus. And Celsus was a, uh, an authority uh, from Roman times who was consulted by uh, author, by uh, doctors and people, even in the modern day as A sort of, you know, compendium of of ancient lore that has been passed down for for centuries, and since much of the ancient lore was made up or uh, certainly was not based on experiment at all, uh, Paracelsus thought he could do better than that, and that's why he calls himself Paracelsus. He's better than Celsus.
0: So that's like a a game designer of the the next century calling himself Paracan. Paracan, exactly. Or Ultralaws. Um, that's
1: the sort of thing they might say. He is tutored by our old buddy Trithemius, who we remember from the John D. books. He, that's one of the guys who teaches him early on. Uh, so, uh, that, uh, lets you know where he's going f- from. And again, it's 1520s, 1530s. The difference between magic and science, between the occult and investigation of nature is a distinction without a difference. All the, all the true things can be known. Uh, magically and medically, you are doing the same sort of thing when you investigate the sources of life, uh, from astrology as when you are investigating them chemically. And what, uh, Paracelsus does is he sort of, um, unifies all of the various theories about, um, uh, uh, toxicity and, uh, tinctures and sets out a, a sort of a general theory, right? That, uh, for example, Paracelsus is one of the guys that says, Uh, everything is poisonous in uh, a large enough amount. There's no such thing as an inherently poisonous thing. There's stuff that's not poisonous in a tiny amount and there's stuff that's poisonous in a huge amount. And the job of the, of the toxicologist is to know where that amount is. And, uh, so he's, that's a, that's a huge departure from medieval times where you would say, well, that's a good plant and that's an evil plant. That's a good plant. That's an evil plant. plant. That's a good plant. That's an evil plant. He's like all the plants. And all the metals exist to do things. And the more they do them, uh, if they do them in balance, right? If your humors are in balance, then everything's fine. And it's when your balance gets all whack, that's when you're in trouble. And it's a world of continuums rather than a, a world of dualities. Exactly. And that's one of the things that, um, uh, that sort of provides him with his. Uh, intellectual insight, but the reason he has that intellectual insight is because he is a hermeticist. He believes in the balance between macrocosm and microcosm, that the world is arranged in a perfect design by God. And that if you depart from that perfect design, of course, you screw yourself up. That's what perfect design means. And the more you can sort of figure out the signature the, the 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 heavenly signature in an object, the more you can figure out what it's actually designed to do so if you have a plant that looks like a uh lung, then you would take that plant to make your lungs better because obviously God would not just repeat the design arbitrarily, so lung must be good for your lungs right that and on and on and on and on like that
0: but even with this uh idea of finding these correspondences which uh you know obviously don't hold up today uh, that not, <laughs> not sorry, <entirely. laughs> uh, he still was departing from uh, common practice in a lot of ways and saying that it wasn't good enough just to find some other book that said something was so that in order to uncover uh, new knowledge and to check old knowledge, you actually had to observe nature, which uh, is a you know precursor to the scientific theory, but at the time was not uh, by any means the basic assumption that people were proceeding on. Um, So what is his uh, specific contribution to uh, the occult? Because, of course, there's a certain point at which the medical knowledge he encounters is then absorbed into the um, body of general medical knowledge and improved upon and becomes, uh, we think of that now as science. But others of his, uh, you know, the rest of his hermetic thought, winds up, you know, the stuff that turns out, you know, not to check out, uh, winds up being occult lore. So what are his, uh, contributions to the occult? Well, one of the things that he does is
1: he is, uh, one of the guys who formalizes the elemental theory. Uh, so he's the guy who names all the elementals. So he's the guy that decides salamanders are the elements of fire and undines are the elements of water. Sylphs are the elements of air, gnomes are the elements of earth. He sort of formalizes that, um, although he, again, he's not a, a, a rude elementist, elementist. He, um, uh, although again, he believes that surf, sulfur, mercury, and salt are the things that you build all matter out of. So he has an elemental, uh, conception there that he takes mostly from gaber Uh, he's an astrologer and very interested in astrology. So he, he drives interest in astrology as a, uh, uh, way to diagnose pretty much everything. Um, And in that way, he is the father of criminal profiling. But he's not a magician qua magician. He believes that, you know, you can put an angel name on a talisman and use that to focus energy. But. You can't just summon things. You can't just call up demons. You can't do magical spells that fix things. That's nonsense. You have to have a physical action in the physical world uh, that, uh, that will drive away the physical impulse at the same time that you pray and live a good life so that God will drive away the bad moral impulses.
0: Now, uh, entertainingly, uh, Paracelsus is someone who we he's uh, late enough in the game that we have some stories of what he was like as a person and what he was like was kind of a jerk. Uh, he was yes. uh, famously with, with a name like bombastus. It has to be good. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so it, uh, turns out that he, uh, is, uh, was very splenetic. Uh, he was, uh, uh, got uh, angry and vengeful when he thought he'd been, uh, rooked on a, uh, business deal. Uh, and, uh, in general was, uh, not a friendly guy. He was, uh, pretty, uh, ir- irascible. And so, uh, that, uh, gives you sort of an interesting uh, character to play if you're uh, running a game that is uh, set in the Renaissance. And where, where was he operating out of? He was operating out of a lot of places. He started out in uh, Switzerland and went to uh,
1: the University of Basel. That was his first job. He held the chair of medicine at the University of Basel. He was the city physician of Basel, and he angered the university by inviting barber surgeons and alchemists and uh, druggists into the lectures because he was he said you know they deal with just as many sick people as doctors do they need to know all this stuff and they can tell us things that we don't know and they would say but these people can't read latin and he says sick people aren't latin sick people are sick people that's what you're studying not latin and he uh he he burned um uh, the writings of galen which was a big deal because it was church doctrine that uh, galen was uh, uh one of the people who passed down knowledge from the time of christ when everything was supposed to be uh, well and good, and if you disagreed with Galen, you were a, a bad person. And so, that got him thrown out of Basel, pretty much. He then becomes a citizen of Strasbourg. He basically buys life in Strasbourg, and then he gets tied up in Lutheranism, uh, because people say, you're a guy who burns books and says the church is wrong. <laughs> Maybe you're a Lutheran. He's like, I'm not a Lutheran. I'm a doctor. I'm Paracelsus. Curse <laughs> yeah. you and then uh started um uh, uh lawsuits and fights over uh, uh people's uh doctors fees uh so he has to uh, run out uh, get, get run out of there um and so he sort of wanders around europe um and because he's a really good doctor you'd call him if someone important was sick and then You'd, he'd fix them and then he'd stick around being Paracelsus until you threw him out again. So he wanders around Europe. He dies very early. He dies at, at 47, uh, in Salzburg in Austria. So he sort of can be found pretty much anywhere in that stretch of central Europe between say, uh, 1526 and 15, um, uh, In 1541.
0: So, for fictional purposes, you need him somewhere. He's attending to a a minor member of the royal family or at whatever location, and that's how you meet him. Or
1: an important scholar, someone like that. Uh, And also, um, he uh, supposedly met the wandering Jew. So, if you need to have a tie-in to that, uh, this is the sort of time in which people uh, would say about some other guy, uh, like Agrippa, they would say, oh, Agrippa's awesome. He's a great magician. You know, he met the wandering Jew. And that was sort of like one of your uh, one of your bona fides that you would have.
0: And so people said that about Paracelsus. And is there a story behind that? Or did they just like share a question uh, I, or I suspect they didn't get along. <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: if you're talking about people who have a grudge to bear. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's like the only guy who's like, ah, you think you've got problems, Paracelsus. All right. And, and like many people who have legitimate beefs, the last person they want to talk to is
0: someone with a bigger beef. Right. So he's uh, basically someone who uh, is in his actual life, uh, was not a worker of magic, but rather uh, wrote things that became the foundation for other people who were making more outlandish claims of being able to work magic. They would then say, well, this call comes from Paracelsus, and this theory is based on this... A uh, legit thing is why I can, uh, you know, contact the spheres or, or what have you. So, uh, And again, again uh, didn't work magic is something that I think you wouldn't
1: say looking at him. Like, if you were just shown a guy who is very carefully taking the patient's horoscope and drawing up an astrological talisman to prevent Saturn from having a baneful influence on them, we might say, that looks like he's working magic. But Paracelsus would say, pa, magic! I'm not uh, summoning anything. All I'm doing is the the equivalent of, of, you know, shutting the windows against miasmic night air.
0: So if uh, in the modern day you acquire an amulet of Paracelsus that uh, drives a plot line, it is presumably a a protective device against uh, baleful influence, whether that be a disease or uh, demons or uh, what have you. And uh, if you happen to have a horoscope that's close enough to the person that it was originally created for. It's uh, it's quite powerful. How else would you bring uh, Paracelsian plot lines into a modern-day uh, occult uh, gaming?
1: In a modern-day occult game, I think what you would do is you would find, like you say, either an amulet or you might find an elixir that he had made, uh, and it becomes sort of one of your uh, healing potion-type deals. Another thing that you might uh, look into is an elemental if he uh an elemental might be another connection because it could have lived all the way from the 16th century.
0: You could have bound it into a uh, crystal or what have you yeah. and you could drop the crystal and all of a sudden you've got an elemental to deal with.
1: Mm-hmm. And it's an elemental that uh, knows an awful lot about chemistry, right? And so if the elemental ever gets loose in a chem lab, it can you know build explosives and do all manner of things that you wouldn't necessarily expect an elemental to do. That would be kind of fun. Another thing that you might have as a modern day Paracelsian influence is poisons, because of course that was his big concern is, you know, what's poisonous, what's not poisonous. And he, you, you could have like an ultimate poison that kills people, or you could have someone that he, um, someone that was poisoned and Paracelsus administered a, a, a dose of something, but it was too late. and, but the thing is, it was actually that they died under a bad conjunction of Jupiter or something. And so once that bad conjunction comes around again, the, his cure can finally work. And so someone gets reanimated because Paracelsus actually cured them. It was just not quite at the exact right time. So you could have uh, one of his, you know, his, his medical uh, miracles continue to happen from beyond the grave. It's just not necessarily a good thing now.
0: Right. Or it could be a good thing. You could have a, one of those situations where a player leaves the campaign and uh, you say well they've been uh poisoned by this unearthly poison and the only way to uh, bring them back from the grave is to uh, or bring them back from the brink of death i should say is to go and get the ultimate antidote of uh uh paracelsus and then you, the characters go and they find the antidote and they uh bring the uh they rescue the character from death uh in time for them to return from their vacation rejoin the group or or what have you um so uh before we leave have we left any uh, Paracelsian goodness on the, uh, on the table?
1: Uh, there is one thing that he invents that I think he doesn't get enough credit for. And that is, uh, he is the first guy to diagnose something as psychosomatic, right? The belief that you can think yourself into a disease and. He, he believed it was true of, of Korea, which it is not true of, but he, uh, he did think because he, he would examine people with like, uh, with Korea and he would say, I have no idea why they're shaking. They're not poisoned. They're not sinners. There, there's no bad, bad stars operating on them. So they must merely believe so strongly in the existence of this disease that they've given it to themselves. And so the notion that you can think yourself into a disease is you know, I mean, it's, it's medical fact now, but it, you know, at the time it was pretty crazy and, and revolutionary. And I think that you can use Paracelsus also as sort of the father of mimetics in that way, that if you there's something that you believe, uh, it alters, you know, your, uh, it, 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 it alters your, um, uh, somatology as well as your psychology. And I think that that is uh, an interesting thing to play with is certainly if you're moving into a, like a transhuman game with robots and, and clones and, and genetic engineering, that you can also create some of these same effects by reprogramming the human brain.
0: You I could, think your, your brain uh, reprogramming device could be called Paracelsus. Right.
1: It, or it, it, you could be um, using um, uh, Paracelsian mimetics or Paracelsian... Um uh a uh, uh, brain hacking or something any or there could be like a software that's the Paracelsus software that you find, and it uh, rewrites your brain and makes you believe that you're not diseased or believe that you have certain connections to the stars that you
0: didn't have before right and it can also make you believe that your favorite podcast has come to an end for another week, but we'll be back a week from now stuff having once again been talked about it's time to thank our sponsors Atlas games Pelgrane press Phoenix Arc Dream Dork Tower and pro fantasy software music as always is by James Semple be a doll and hit the donate button at canonrobibintalkbottuff.com
1: emulating such fine role models as Martin Runkfist and Pedro Sanchez watch out for our patreon whose ducks are rapidly coming into alignment on Twitter he's
0: at Kenneth Height. and he's at Robin D Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff.